Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Nicole Birkins is a licensed clinical psychologist and board-certified nutritionist specializing in evaluation and treatment of children with serious developmental and mental health conditions. And today we're gonna cover all things mental health and nutrition, but not just for kids and parents, but for all adults as well. Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. And I'm going to start with a a big question. It seems like there are so many more children, so many more teens, so many more young adults struggling and diagnosed with neurodevelopmental and mental health challenges these days. It seems that way. Is that really the case? And, And why do you think It is the case if I am correct. Yeah, it's such an important question. And it's true. We are seeing that over the last one to two decades, we've seen a steady increase in kids, teens, young adults being diagnosed with a whole realm of things, everything from neurodevelopmental issues like autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, those kinds of things to mental health diagnoses, anxiety disorders, mood and depressive disorders, learning challenges, all of those kinds of things have been on the rise. And it particularly shows up, I think, um, autism and ADHD are the ones that sort of get the most press because the numbers there have been the most alarming, but certainly depression, anxiety, all of that. And so it it does beg the question of what's happening there. Why are so many more kids, sometimes from a very young age, struggling with things that we really didn't see at this level of frequency 30 years ago, and certainly before that. And and what the research and my own clinical experience and that of my colleagues in the fields of medicine and mental health, what it points to is a combination of things. It's not just one thing. That would be simple, right? If we just identify the thing, like people say, well, what's the cause of autism or anxiety or whatever? Well, we know that there's lots of different things. And what the research points to is a combination of genetic predispositions with lots of different potential environmental triggers. And those environmental triggers can be anything from foods that we're eating to toxins in our environment, in our air, in our water, can be just even the change in the nutrient density of foods that we eat now compared to 30, 40, 100 years ago. stressors and traumas and things that happen to people. It can be issues around how our schooling and educational systems have changed and how the expectations there have changed, changes in the family system. So we see all of these components really coming together, this interplay of who kids are in terms of their biology and physiology and genetics combined with an environment that has changed a whole lot. And what we're seeing is the combination of those things is leading a lot more kids to have not only physical health things, but also very significant mental health symptoms, brain-based symptoms, neurological kinds of issues. So let's stay on anxiety. For for me, that's the big one. I think there's no question we're, we're we're living in generation anxiety, if you will. And and look, there's a lot to be anxious about, rightfully so, for getting through a pandemic. So if we stay on anxiety, 
What are those, let's walk through those factors from kids all the way up to, to young adults and whether it's nutrition, sleep, technology, can you kind of walk through or the environment, can you walk us through those drivers, which you believe are contributing to a generation filled with a lot of anxiety? Absolutely. And I think this is a critical one to look at because everything that we've been talking about and that I'll talk about for kids through young adults is just as applicable to adults too. And anxiety is something that we have absolutely seen on the rise in adults as well as kids and well before the pandemic, although that has certainly sort of escalated it. But I think there's a lot of specific areas that often don't get discussed or looked at the sort of you know, typical medical mental health system approach is, well, you've got these symptoms, you've got anxiety, go get some counseling, here's some medication. And while those things can be very helpful for some people, it leaves out an entire realm of these other things that you're raising. So let's take nutrition. What do we know about nutrition and anxiety? Well, we have studies that connect specific nutrient levels to anxiety symptoms in kids that tends to be related to things like B6 and B12 levels, zinc levels, D3. We can look at omega-3 fatty acid levels, magnesium, some of those kinds of things that we know from the research play a role in the development or in exacerbating anxiety symptoms, as well as food sensitivities and food allergies, which is a whole nother realm of things that we're seeing on the rise as well. The number of kids who are having food related issues and that dovetails with what we see in the anxiety literature as well, that kids who are having problematic reactions and responses to foods tend to also have more mental health symptoms and challenges, anxiety in particular. So food and even the nutrient density and the quality of food that we're eating has changed. When we look at what the typical diet was for a child or for a family 50 years ago compared to today, it's really night and day difference. And with the, you know, excessive consumption for a lot of kids and families of what we would call ultra processed foods and the lack of nutritional information or nutrient density that those contain, we know from the research that has an impact on kids developing brains. And one of the areas where we see symptoms develop is in being more prone to those anxiety symptoms, more prone to worry, to stuck thoughts, to difficulty with regulating that. So Food is a big piece that unfortunately food and, and, and nutrients don't get talked about enough. And to me, it's some of the low hanging fruit when it comes to looking at why kids are exhibiting challenges and also what we might be able to do about it. So that's the nutrition piece. Just important for people to be aware that's a factor. But sleep is another big one. And I think across the board for children and teenagers. Sleep is one of the most under-recognized, under-appreciated driving factors for mental health and developmental kinds of symptoms. Sleep has a tremendous impact on all of us, but kids are exquisitely sensitive to sleep loss, to not getting the quality of sleep they need. And to the point where in the research literature on ADHD, we know that 25 to 40% of kids who end up diagnosed with ADHD actually have an undiagnosed or untreated sleep disorder. That's the profound impact that sleep 
place on how a child's brain is functioning. And it's important for parents to be aware of that because sleep, again, it's low hanging fruit. If a child's not getting enough good quality sleep, that is a very actionable thing for us to look at. What are the steps that we need to take to help this child get better sleep, which in turn then supports the brain's ability to function, supports all aspects of you know, their mental health and their physical health. So it's another one that people often say, well, I brought my child here for anxiety or you know, ADHD or whatever. Why are you asking about sleep? And it's because there is such a critical connection for children, but also for adults to be aware of for themselves. If you're not sleeping well, it's going to have an impact on your anxiety. So going back to nutrition, I'm curious, what are those hero foods that all kids should be enjoying eating a lot of to, to help boost their brain and also adults as well. Yeah, absolutely. So one of my big hero foods is pumpkin seeds. And here's why it may sound like a bizarre thing, but in 25 years of clinical practice with kids, you have to look at what can you actually get in kids, right? And pumpkin seeds are an easy one to get in a variety of ways. Kids will just snack on them as is. We can flavor them in different ways. We can grind them and put them in things. They're a very versatile thing. And here's why they're a real powerhouse in terms of brain function. Pumpkin seeds have really big amounts of important minerals that kids need, especially when we think about their brain development and their brain function. We've got zinc, we've got magnesium, we've got good amounts of iron, all of those things very nutrient dense. And so they're an easy target to look at of, hey, how can we get some of these in a trail mix, in a muffin, in a breakfast cereal, in oatmeal? How can we work more of these in? And we're hitting so many great targets for kids by doing that. So that may be an out of the box one, but it's one that I always um, that I I love go to. Yeah. And the big ones, when we think about brain development, are our foods that contain high amounts of omega-3 fatty acids, particularly things like salmon and sardines and tuna. And the omega-3 fatty acids for sure have the most research literature and evidence behind them for supporting brains in kids and adults, but particularly brain development in children, specifically DHA type of omega-3 fatty acid. The challenge around that is it's easy to say, oh yeah, have your kid eating fatty cold water fish three times a week to get the right amount of DHA. Well, how many parents are going, oh yeah, that's a breeze. I can totally get my kid to do that. Or sardines, oh yeah, we can figure that out. So some of the things that we know have a lot of the nutrients that kids need, We either need to get creative about how we're working them into the diet while we're expanding kids' palates and tolerance for things, or we need to look to supplementation. But certainly supplementing with omega-3 fatty acid, particularly DHA, and then secondarily EPA for kids, whether you can get that in through food sources or you're looking at supplementation, it's a big one for any child from infancy through those young adult years, for sure. Oh, wow. So that young. Yeah. Absolutely. And what about sleep? And I want to talk about the sleep for little kids and then also sleep for us big kids. <laughs> How many hours? Yeah. So it varies for children depending on the age that they're at. Infants need a tremendous amount of sleep. They spend the bulk of their hours. When you think about newborns, how much they sleep, and that's because they're in a period of rapid growth. 
What's interesting and that most people often don't realize or, or think about is that the second most rapid phase of growth and development brain and body wise in the human life cycle is adolescence, which means that our teens and you know even our preteens, but certainly our teens are needing an immense amount of sleep, much more than most of them are getting in order to support the rapid period of brain and body development that they're in. So infancy, followed by adolescence, bigger need for sleep. So when we look at our babies, birth to two years of age, they're getting 14 to 18 hours of sleep. When we look at our preschoolers, 12 to 14 is the range. Our elementary age kids, maybe up through fifth, sixth grade, there we're looking at wanting them to get nine, 10 hours. In adolescence, the range is eight to 10 or even more, although many of them do better with getting more than eight hours of sleep. But unfortunately, eight hours is something that a lot of them are not getting. And it shows up in a lot of ways then in their mental health and their learning and in their behavior. So those are the ranges for kids. When we get to adulthood, there's sort of this idea that eight hours of sleep is great. Well, there's variance with that, right? And I know that you've interviewed lots of you know, people around sleep. Some adults can do fine with six and a half, seven. Some need more than eight. What's important is that we're getting an amount that allows us to feel and function at our best. And that's important for our kids too, to be aware of, especially if they're having symptoms. If your child is having any symptoms in the realms of things like mood or anxiety issues, learning challenges, behavioral issues, sensory processing issues, attention issues, any of those things, sleep is definitely something to look at and say, what's going on with my child's sleep? Could this be a contributing factor? Because the research is so clear that sleep plays a big role in those things. And again, I think that even for adults, many adults are not getting the sleep that they need. And they might think that just shows up in maybe having panic attacks or feeling anxious all the time, but it impacts us a lot of different ways that then contribute to our anxiety. When our brain is foggy, when we're you know feeling fatigued, that makes us more anxious because we're not able to do the things that we need to do very well. So anxiety and sleep are, are very um, closely connected for kids and for adults. And what about movement? Our, our practice every weekend is let's tire the kids out with a lot of movement, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Is that even the right practice? <laughs> well, it's interesting. There's sort of a bell curve of how effective that is. There's a sweet spot with it, right? Of where movement is good. It's essential for supporting kids' brain development. Kids' brains cannot develop optimally in the absence of enough movement. And I think that's another thing that people don't realize, especially even before COVID, we already knew that this was the most sedentary generation of kids in history. COVID has, of course, naturally exacerbated that. But, you know, people often think about that being a problem for weight and the obesity epidemic, right? But actually, being sedentary is problematic for many aspects of development, brain development in kids, as well as mental health. We have reams of research showing physical activity, physical movement is critical for our mental health, for helping us manage anxiety, for regulating our mood, for 
allowing us to think clearly, to focus all of those things. So from a mental health intervention standpoint, movement is critical. And when we're too sedentary, that's a problem. And for kids as well, they need to move, literally physically move and explore and have enough physical activity to develop the connections in their brain that allow for all kinds of higher level, more mature skills, whether that's academics, reading and writing, whether that's regulating their um, attention, their emotions, their behavior. Movement literally is one of the things that allows those connections in the brain to develop. So when we've got kids sitting around too much, when we are overly sedentary, it doesn't do um, it doesn't do good things for our kids or for us. So I think it's important to know, but there's also, there's too much at the wrong time, right? Like taking a kid and saying, I'm going to wear you out right before bed, (laughs) chaotic and racing around. Then often we find that did not work well. And now they're so like overstimulated and worked up that they can't wind themselves down. So good amounts of activity throughout the daytime hours. That's kind of what we're aiming for. Got it. So let's segue to screens and TV. During the pandemic, we discovered Disney Plus in our family, became a huge fan, saved our sanity for a couple months. What's your take on screens and TV? And yeah, what's your take on screens and TV? When is it productive? When is it non-productive? I find some programs of Sesame Street, I look at Sesame Street and I say to myself, wow, this is impressive in terms of what they're teaching, in terms of diversity, in terms of everything and other programs, eh, not so much, but what's, I'll take a step back. What's your take on screens, TV? What's productive, non-productive? Is it, I think it's nuanced, but I, mm-hmm. you're the professional. It, it absolutely is nuanced and the research bears out that it's nuanced. And my experience as a parent and as a professional working with families confirms that it's nuanced. I think my overall take is that technology is a part of our lives. It's not going away. It's important and valuable. And it also brings some downsides to it, but it's here. It's a part of our lives. And so we need to be focused on helping children and ourselves develop healthy relationships with devices and with technology. It's no longer, the discussion should no longer be about, do we let kids have devices or not? That ship long sailed, right? Yes, they're here. They're using them. Even if you aren't giving them to kids at home, they're using them all day long at school. So the discussion needs to be really focused on how do we help kids learn and adopt healthy device habits, healthy digital habits. And that starts with us understanding what that means for ourselves so that we're modeling healthy device habits, which is a real challenge. We are the first generation of parents raising kids in this 24-7 internet-connected device-centric world. And we're still figuring that out for ourselves, right? What does it mean for us to have a healthy relationship with technology and with our devices. But that's so critical as a starting point because we are the models for our kids. And so we need to think about that for ourselves and help our kids develop a life that is rich in lots of areas beyond just their devices. The goal isn't to not use them. The goal is to make sure that they're not taking the place of other valuable, important things that kids need to be doing and that they're a part of kids' lives, not the center point 
of kids' lives. And so when we think about, you know, how much time and what kinds of devices and all of that, we come back to that as really our anchor point of, is this playing a valuable role? Is it a piece of what goes on for my child? Or is it too much of a central focus? Is my child doing all the other things socially and physically and learning wise and relationally and all of those things that are important? And as long as the devices aren't getting in the way of those other important things, then that's a healthy balance. And that looks different for a two-year-old than it does for a 17-year-old, right? So it grows and evolves with them. But I think that's helpful to anchor our thinking around. Got it. So we're deep back into school. In some places, they've been back for a month. In other places, it's slowly happening. And that's a good thing. Kids need to be in school. I think everyone believes that. Kids need to physically be in school. I don't think the Zoom experiment worked well for any anyone. So with that said, as a kid, being back in school during a pandemic, it is what it is. <laughs> but what exactly, what should we be thinking about we're concerned about with regards to how this affects them or doesn't affect them. On the other hand, kids are kids and they're very resilient and they just roll with it for the most part. Like how concerned or unconcerned should we be about kids going to school during a pandemic? It's a great question. And I think it's one that parents globally have wrestled with over the last 18 months. And now parents are wrestling with the desire to very much have their kids out of the house and in school, but also the concerns around that. So a few things to think about there that I think are important. The first is that kids by and large will match the level of anxiety, angst, distress, insert your choice of emotion there, that the adults around them are exhibiting. So when we think about or ask the question, like, how does this affect kids? My next question is, well, actually, how is it affecting the adults? What's going on with the adults around kids? Because when you have a parent or parents who maybe are extremely anxious about it and verbalizing that and just sort of oozing anxiety and distress or anger or whatever it might be around the situation, kids match that. They pick up on that. And that is that guides them in knowing like, oh, how am I supposed to feel and respond to this? So we need to be careful and aware about what's going on in us and how we are projecting that because our kids are like sponges and they pick that up, which doesn't mean that we should not have any anxiety about any of it. But it means that if I am feeling anxious about whatever it might be with school right now, that I'm working on that myself as an adult and not putting that out to my kids and into the family environment to stir up their anxiety about it. That I am working on regulating my emotions and behaviors around that so that my kids can be more emotionally and behaviorally regulated. And so I think that's important as, again, like the, a starting point with that. Kids are resilient. I think their resilience has been probably overtapped for a lot of them <laughs> in the last 18 months, but they are resilient and they do tend to roll with things, many of them better than we as adults do, right? And so even if 
you as a parent disagree perhaps with a policy or something that is going on in your child's school right now related to COVID. If you make the decision to send them back there, you need to work on accepting what is and saying, it's important, I've decided it's important for my child to be there. And you need to make sure that you are not inadvertently, you know, creating distress for the child in be having a problem with the policies or arguing about those things because it's your choice to not, right? If you have an issue with policies that are in place, then you can still choose not to send your child to school. But if your child's going to be there to be supportive of the policies that are in place, even if that means just not making a big deal out of it, like, yep, we just accepted it as is. You're going to school. These are the masking rules. This is whatever it is. And so this is what is. And it's a great opportunity to help kids work on accepting what is and saying, okay, what are the things I have control over? What are the things I don't have control over? And really focusing for ourselves and for them on what can we control and focusing there as opposed to focusing on all the things that are outside of our control. I think that's really I think that's sound advice, whether or not you have a child or not. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> it's funny yeah. how so much of your advice transcends parenting or children. Yeah. So on that note, this is just a widespread problem, regardless of age, whether you're eight years old or 80 years old, medication, mm -hmm. SSRIs, they work, they're powerful, they save lives. But on the other hand, it seems like we're a little bit over medicated, a little bit maybe too prevalent, if you will. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is going on there? They do work. I don't want to diminish the mm -hmm. power of, yeah. of these medications. They do right. work and they do save lives. Right. But it seems not to be working as our only strategy as we look to tackle the mental health epidemic. So yeah. what needs to happen instead of just pulling out the RX pad and prescribing an SSRI? And, that, and again, we need to do that, but it seems like we, could, we can do some other things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And especially where we're talking about kids and teens, I think it's important to recognize that yes, medications are valuable. They do save lives. They are an important tool in the toolbox for some people. But they certainly are not the solution to mental health symptoms and issues in kids or adults because we have more and more people with more and more chronic mental health symptoms than ever before, while we also have more and more people on these medications than ever before. So we can clearly say, regardless of what anyone's opinions about psychiatric drugs might be, we know that they are not the magic bullet or the solution to mental health challenges for people. We need to look more holistically at what are all the pieces that we need to have in place or be supporting to truly help minimize symptoms, to help people function better. And the over-medication piece, we certainly do have evidence of that in the research literature and where it becomes particularly concerning for kids and teenagers is how widely used these medications have become in pediatric populations, even though we largely have an absence of good research evidence and studies on these medications in pediatric populations. And I think that is something relevant for all of us to be concerned about, that if we're going to use these drugs in children, 
And in the United States, these drugs, whether we're talking about SSRIs or even things like antipsychotics or things like that, we prescribe them in this country for children as young as the first year of life, sadly. Wow. And as they've become more widely used, our research has not kept up in terms of, well, let's look at not only what the short-term benefit is or isn't, but also long-term, because most of the studies that have been done in adults, well, adults already have fully formed physiologies, fully formed brains. So that's a different picture than using these substances in young children whose brains are still very much in a rapid phase of development. And so what are the long-term impacts of that? And sadly, we don't have enough research on that. So I think that there is reason to pause, whether it's those of us in the professional realm or parents and say, let's make sure that we're doing all of the things that we can to support symptom reduction, to support development and mental health in kids. And if we're doing those good things and it becomes clear that looking at some medication may be beneficial or necessary, then we do that not as a first resort, but as an add-on to the other important good things that we're doing in the realms of things like we've talked about, like lifestyle habits, sleep, nutrition status, nutrient levels, resolving physiological health things that contribute to mental health, looking at the family system, giving parents the training and tools and support to engage with their kids in ways that reduce anxiety, that improve behavior, working with the schools to make sure that we have reasonable expectations and are supporting the learning styles and the needs of kids. Those should be our primary focus And then if it becomes clear that something else would be beneficial, then we look at the medication. Where I get concerned is too often it happens where a parent brings a child into a healthcare practitioner's office and after a 10 minute visit with virtually no delving into the issues, they leave with a prescription or a recommendation for something in the medication realm. And there isn't a research evidence for approaching these things in that way. There's not a body of research literature that says that's the way we should approach it. And so I'm really invested in parents and people themselves as adults understanding all of the options and the why wide range of tools that have research evidence that are safe, that are effective for mental health challenges in kids and adults so that they can make the most informed decision for themselves. When you are told that the only options are medication and counseling, doesn't give you much to go on, right? And if those don't work for you or your child, then where are you left? So I'm really invested in people understanding their whole range of options so that they can make a truly informed decision about what's going to be best for their child or for themselves. So I'm very curious about how the problems we're seeing have evolved. You've been practicing for quite some time. How how long have you been practicing? 25 years. 25 years. So I'm curious, what, what did you used to see in your practice 25 years ago? A lot of if you had to put like if you had to put your practice in the buckets i see like 25 percent this 25 percent that maybe 50 percent that and so on so can you compare that 25 years ago to what you're seeing today in september 21 and how that's evolved 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you talk to anyone in anyone who's a pediatrician, anyone who is a mental health professional working with kids, anyone who's a teacher or who works in the school system, they would largely say um, the same thing that I'm about to say, which is we didn't see nearly the amount of significant neurodevelopmental and mental health issues in kids 25, 30 years ago that we're seeing now. When I first started in working with kids, and I was actually a teacher before I became a psychologist, I was hired to teach in the very first program that this very large school district opened for elementary age kids with autism. And that was back in the mid 90s. And they had five kids district wide who needed this kind of programming. And so I opened a classroom for them. You fast forward to today, that same district has classrooms like that in virtually every building. The number of kids diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders, with ADHD, which back 25 years ago, we had estimates of maybe 3%, maybe, of the childhood population. Now, right now in 2021, our stats are closer to 11, 12% of school-age kids either diagnosed or medicated for ADHD. So it has shifted. And I think in addition to those issues, just huge increases, anxiety is the other big one. We saw kids with specific types of anxiety, certainly 25 years ago, but the number of kids coming in now, and particularly right now at this moment with the phone ringing off the hook because so many parents are struggling because their kids have developed an increasingly dysfunctional amount of anxiety. It's impacting their ability to do daily things. That's the other big one right now. And I think these were all challenges and things that really needed to be analyzed and put out in the open and talked about before the pandemic hit. Now we don't have a choice. To me, the real long-term pandemic that we're entering into now is the mental health piece of all of this, of a population of kids and adults, by and large, who already were kind of just holding on and getting by and maybe some subclinical kinds of stuff that now has just full force to the surface. And this virus will go away, like we'll get through this piece of it, but the mental health and the developmental fallout for kids and really for all of us, that is, you know, what we need to be focusing on as our our, our big emphasis area moving forward. To me, there's just no getting around that. So I love where you went. For us to to, to zoom out for a moment, what should we all be doing more of and less of right now to to get through this mental health epidemic? Yeah, a couple things. First, it comes down to really prioritizing good basics of caring for our bodies and ourselves, which means focusing on the basics of getting enough sleep. If that's something that's gone by the wayside or isn't working well for you or your kids, getting good sleep in place, looking at where we've gotten to in terms of our pattern of eating and saying, what would be better for us to do here? And if you didn't have any of those good, maybe habits or systems in place before the pandemic, now is the time to start that, to look at 
are we moving enough as a family? Are my kids moving enough? And am I moving up? Looking at those basics, what is our relationship with technology? Are our kids grumpy and arguing and irritable all the time because we've just kind of gotten into a pattern of like just letting everybody kind of have their face in the screen all the time? No shame there. We've all done it. I'm a mom of four. Like I get it. But looking at resetting some of those basics, I think, is really important right now for getting our mental health back on track and getting mental health for our kids back on track. The other piece that I would share around that is a way that I think is really helpful to think about handling situations where there is a lot of ongoing uncertainty, which uncertainty is at the root of anxiety. That's why we experience anxiety. Anxiety is really about the level of uncertainty in a situation and our sense of our capability to handle it. Those are the two parts of the scale with anxiety. We can have a lot of uncertainty, but if we also have a lot of confidence and belief in our ability to handle it, we manage and we actually do okay. But if we're in a prolonged period of heightened uncertainty and our sense of ourselves being able to handle it or our kids' belief in their ability to handle what might come down the pike at school today or what might happen, if their sense of confidence is low, they're going to experience very significant anxiety and other kinds of mental health issues. So for all of us, we cannot control the uncertainty side of the scale, which is why saying to a child or our partner or whatever, oh, don't worry about that, or oh, it'll be okay, that doesn't work because we know it's not true. We can't control the uncertainty. What we can control is focusing on that other part of the equation, which is our belief and confidence in ourselves of being able to handle it and focusing there with our kids. I don't know what might happen next week with school. We don't know, but here's what I do know. You will be able to handle whatever happens. Here's what you've already handled. Here's how you handled a situation like that before. I know that you're going to be able to do it. And to tell ourselves that and that emphasis and that focus is really what helps us get through and support our mental health in the big picture as we continue to go through this massive period of uncertainty that we don't have control over. So you talk about the connection between uncertainty and anxiety, and I think something that helps so many people, myself included, and and this is a big one for kids, is the power of the routine. Yes. Can you talk about why routines (laughs) can really help, you know, us, us big kids and why they're so critical for little kids? Absolutely. Routines ground us and help us feel in control. The more uncertainty we feel, the more we as human beings are driven to control things in order to at least give ourselves the illusion that everything is under our own power, right? That there's not so much uncertainty. And routines are about predictability and therefore they're about feeling like we're in control over things. It's sort of like for our kids, like, wow, all these things happened today and it was disorienting and upsetting at school, but I know I can count on, we're gonna eat dinner tonight 
as a family, or I know this is how the evening routine goes, or I know who's going to be there when I get home from school. Those kinds of routines allow us actually to be more tolerant of all of the uncertainties and more flexible around that. But when we've just got chaos all the time and kids and and even for ourselves, we literally don't know what to expect with anything in our lives. Everything's haphazard. Everything's just all over the board. That's a recipe for us to feel really anxious because it feels like everything's out of control. Nothing is predictable. And so it drives that anxiety. And from a neuroscience standpoint, the brain is a pattern seeking machine. Brains really like to be able to see pattern, to have predictability. It allows our brains actually to be a lot more efficient. And so that's a way, routines are a way that we really support our brain function. And our brains are really driven to find those routines. And so it just helps us across the board. But that's why routines are important, especially for children. They're important for all of us, but especially for kids. So while there's still a lot of uncertainty, you can do a really important thing by focusing on keeping the routines and even talking with kids about contingency plans and routines if different things happen. If school ends up getting shut down, if half your class is quarantined and so they go to Zoom and you can't go to school, let's do some previewing of what that's going to be like. We've got some plans in place. Let's already plant the seed of we know what we're going to do. Here's who's going to be home with you. Here's how we're going to make it work. That's really helpful to have those contingency plans and routines already in place for them to anticipate. And it also is really helpful to us, too, as the adults. Another one I think is so critical, and again, this goes for adults too, but I'm curious how we can help build our kids' self-esteem. It's such a big one. If that's a huge one. We could do a whole discussion <laughs> just about that, but a, a few things with that. I think making sure that we have a good balance between the things that we are spotlighting perhaps that are negative or critical and the things that we're spotlighting for them that are positive and that we appreciate and recognize are good about them. No parent or teacher or anybody else intends to be overly negative with a kid, but it does tend to be the case that the feedback that we give them is around correcting them, right? Is around the things that we wish they weren't doing or that they need to do differently or they need to do better or whatever. And so I think just being aware of that balance and intentional about at least a few times a day, pointing out the good things that we see them doing, the things that we see that are strengths for them. So that's a basic one that we can do. I also think helping kids to realistically identify their challenges as well as the things that they're good at, because we all have those. And for us to model that as well, an easy routine that I sometimes have families do is an activity around the dinner table or at bedtime, a rose and a thorn. Something that went well today or that I feel like I did well or that I'm proud of and something that was a challenge or that really didn't go well or that I feel like I screwed up on. And the beauty of that is helping kids to find a balance because our brain so easily focuses on the negative of, oh, wait, 
these things did happen, but you know what? Actually, I did a really cool thing here, or this thing went well, and that helps with the balance. And it also helps with us modeling that we all screw up. I am an adult, and every day I make mistakes. There are problems, there are things that I can do better with. And being honest about that, at the same time as we're being honest about and spotlighting and recognizing our strengths and the things that we're good at. So those are some simple tools that families can start to use. So you, you lead me to my last question. You know, I think every parent is, is trying their best. And there are some days when you say, oh, wow, this is easy. This is beautiful. And there are other days you say to yourself, am I doing this all wrong? Am I like, did I just do the wrong thing? Am I the worst parent ever? Am I going to affect my child five years? Are they going to be scarred from this thing we just went through? You know, and I think that that's me at least. And my wife, Colleen, do you have any advice for, for parents listening who are trying their best? And there are some days they just, they wonder, oh man, am I, am I just really screwing up our children right now? Uh, <laughs> we all, anybody who has ever been responsible for a child as in a parent role or whatever, if they're being honest, has had those feelings, right? And so I, I think it's an important one. And two, two things come to mind around that that I talk with um, parents about often. And those are grace and growth. So the grace piece of it is being willing to give ourselves grace that we are human beings. And as human beings, we are going to screw up. There is no such thing as a perfect parent, nor should there be. We are human beings raising other human beings and we're all messy. And so we are going to screw it up actually more than we get it right. I feel like a baseball analogy works well for this. Like we say that a baseball player is doing awesome if they have a batting average of like 300. That actually means they hit the ball three out of 10 times. I feel like the same thing applies to parenting. Like we need to give ourselves grace that we are going to quote unquote, get it wrong or screw up or not do the ideal more often than we'd like. And that's okay because the growth piece of that is Tomorrow's a new day. The next moment's a new moment. We have an opportunity to change, to grow, to learn, to constantly be striving to do things a little bit better or a little bit different for ourselves and for our kids. And the beautiful thing about understanding the neuroscience part of this is we know that brains have an incredible amount of plasticity, meaning we know that human brains grow and change throughout the lifespan. And that's a relatively new discovery. 20 years ago, that wasn't even a thing. It was like, well, your brain stops growing at this early age and then that's it. We know now that's not true. And the incredible peace that comes from that as a parent of knowing that, yes, I do my best to pour into my kids each day, to raise them in a way that's going to help them be well-adjusted and healthy and happy and all of those things. But I am going to get it wrong sometimes. And their brain will continue to grow and change, not only through their childhood, but well beyond. And so nothing that I do in this moment right now is going to screw them up forever. It, it just won't. So I, I hope that's reassuring and helpful for, for you and every other parent. It, it is reassuring. We will close there. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you. 